Take your Bibles out this morning quickly and turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7. We do want to thank the men for participating this morning, uh, helping to lead in worship with Baptist Men's Day. And just want to invite all the guys in the church, if you're not plugged in somewhere in the ministry, you're really missing an opportunity. Uh, many various avenues of ministry, and we'd love to see more of you plugged in uh, to these uh, avenues. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Revelation 7, and if you'll find Romans 11 for later on in the context of the message uh, that will help us out some there Revelation 11 but uh, uh, excuse me Romans 11 but for now Revelation 7 John said after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will, will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes. Father, we thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ. We thank you that as we read this chapter in the Bible, even in the midst of terrible tribulation, you are going to be at work drawing men and women to faith in Christ and saving them from an eternal absence from your presence. Saving them from, from hell and eternal darkness. And redeeming them that they might have a home in heaven with you. God, we thank you for mercy in the midst of judgment. Lord, I thank you for the way that you're with us in our trials and tribulations. That you're ever present with us. And may that be a tremendous encouragement to somebody here today who may be going through a tough time in their lives now. May they look to you and know that they are surrounded by your presence. And may they take comfort in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As out... Elmer Towns writes, he said, Revival is defined as God pouring himself out on his people. He goes on to say, it is a visitation from God. Towns goes on to write, and I quote here, When most people pray for revival, they're probably asking for a wonderful experience at church next Sunday morning. But revival is more than a simple Sunday experience. When you pray for revival, you're asking God for life-shaking experiences that will cost you plenty. It's agonizing because in revival you become terrorized over your sin and you repent deeply. It's consuming because in revival you have no time for hobbies, for chores around the house, for work, for sleep. Revival crashes your daytimer, interrupts TV times, demands your full attention, and wears you out. Usually when we pray for revival, we're telling God, sick them on all the bad guys. But little do we realize that revival begins with us, the people of God. He concludes there by saying, as a matter of fact, we've got a suggestion for you who want revival. Don't pray for revival. Just repent of all known sin. Give God everything, not part, but the whole of yourself, and you will experience Revival. I was reading this week about the third great awakening in America, probably the greatest revival that America has ever known. It's sometimes known as the Layman's Prayer Revival of 1857 and 1858. In 1857, churches were sliding downhill and many people were becoming disillusioned with Christianity. 
There was a concern in America that money had become too important and Christians were concerned that as a nation we could not serve God and mammon. Now some viewed the collapse of the banks in 1857 known as the panic, the great panic. Some viewed that as a judgment from the hand of God or at least a wake-up call. Jeremiah Lamphere, a concerned layman, started a noon prayer meeting for New York businessmen. Initially, only six people came to this first service on September the 23rd of 1857. A few more came the following week, still more the next week. But by spring of the next year, daily prayer meetings had sprung up in many locations and attendance had grown to over 10,000. America's greatest spiritual awakening had begun. One manufacturer confessed to a hardware store owner that he had cheated him and wanted to make full restitution. When news started spreading about the prayer meetings and the effect that they were having all over the nation, even hardened criminals began turning to the Lord for salvation. In fact, it's said that thousands forsook lives of crime. Crime virtually disappeared off of the streets of the cities of America. The crowds that had been involved in parties and questionable behavior in the cities after dark began forsaking their ways and instead they began going to the church services and these prayer services. Crews on board ships coming into New York Harbor fell under the power of God's presence. On one ship, a captain and 30 men were converted to Christ by the time that the ship had tied up to the dock. Still another occasion, four sailors knelt for prayer down in the depths of the battleship North Carolina that was anchored in the harbor. They began singing and reading Bible verses and suddenly sailors from all all over that ship came running down to them to mock them and make fun of their Christian faith. But the spirit of the living God got a hold on them and time that service was over. Most of those sailors too had been converted. Newspapers began reporting hundreds and thousands gathered in churches all over America with multitudes praying for the lost and the lost being saved. One journal reported that the large cities and towns from Maine to California are sharing in this great and glorious work. There's hardly a village or town to be found where a special divine power does not appear displayed. Businessmen began shutting their doors at certain times of of prayer so everybody could gather together. When one merchant from Albany, New York was trying to place his order with a wholesaler and get back to Albany by that evening, the wholesaler told him it was time to close so they could attend the daily meeting. When the the merchant protested, the wholesaler closed the doors anyway saying that there were things that were more important than making money. The merchant decided to go to the service with him. He was saved. He went back to Albany and he started 
church services and prayer meetings. One businessman from Omaha, Nebraska, making his way to Boston, said that in his travels east, in each place where he stopped, it was easy to find prayer meetings going on which he could attend. He reported that not one time in his travels did he have any difficulty finding crowds gathered together. In fact, he said it was like a continuous prayer service the 2,000 miles from Nebraska to New York. At its peak, 50,000 conversions were being reported weekly. Overall, 1 million new converts came into America's churches. It affected judges, businessmen, slave and free, college students, and housewives. School administrators and teachers would close the doors of their schools so that the students and their families could go to times of prayer. Indeed, a revival and a spiritual awakening swept across America with profound effects on a nation simply because one layman in the Northeast got a burden on his heart for his nation and decided that he needed to call those in his church and community to prayer. And America experienced its greatest revival Ever. Folks, as we turn to Revelation 7 this morning, we see a great revival going on during the tribulation of all times. I mean, imagine that. While hell is breaking out on the face of the earth, here is a great revival that begins. It is a mistake to think that during the tribulation that there will not also be a great work of God going on. I want you to remember that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. Only one aspect of his ministry has changed. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that his restraining influence will be taken out of the way so that the man of sin can be revealed. When the church is raptured out, his restraining arm is lifted off of the world. However, he's still God and he's still everywhere and he's still at work. Jesus said in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so during the tribulation, while he allows sin and rebellion to run rampant, he's also at work in a mighty way. There's going to be multitudes of conversions with many even given their lives for the sake of the gospel. And so right in the middle of hell breaking out on earth, there will be a great revival. Now I want you to see how this unfolds. What you're going to see today is how God awakens people in conversion and then sets them apart and keeps them for himself. Now that of course does not mean that God's children will not ever have to suffer. It just means that if we belong to God, we are ultimately safe in his loving care. 
First thing I want you to see with me this morning, the sealing of God's servants on earth. Read with me again, uh, beginning here in verse 1. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with the seal of the living God and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now I mentioned last week that as the narrative of the book of Revelation is being advanced from time to time there will be a pause. There will be an interlude where, where John will fill in some of the gaps or some of the details of what is going on as these seals are being opened. Now Revelation chapter 7 is one of those interludes. Chapter 7 is like the eye of the storm. One wave of tribulation has passed and another even more intense wave is about to begin but for a short time we have a bit of calm. Now the purpose of this interlude is so that God's elect can be sealed and set apart for protection before the terrible events of the tribulation resume. Now verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7 answers the question that the ungodly asked at the end of chapter 6. You'll remember at the end of chapter 6 the Bible says that many of the ungodly and the kings and the leaders even they were running to the mountains and the caves and they were saying to the rocks fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the one seated upon the throne for the day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? That question, who is able to stand, is answered in chapter 7. The answer to that question, who is able to stand, namely, it will be those who are saved and sealed by the power of God, those who belong to God. Now I want you to notice right away that we're introduced to angels. John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now those who want to cast dispersion on the Bible say, Look right here, see, the earth is round. It doesn't have four corners. But they miss the point altogether. We speak of the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. In fact, according to weather.com this morning in Concord, North Carolina, they said that the sunrise would be at 726 today. But we know the sun doesn't rise. It's just the way things appear and the, things, the way things are written. It doesn't mean it's false. Well, there are four angels holding back the four winds. We speak, for instance, of four northerly, uh, of northerly winds, rather. And this week, boy, those northerly winds have certainly been blowing in some cold weather, haven't they? 
The winds are used in the word of God to sometimes symbolize judgments of God. Here are four angels holding back the wind. Think of how strange that that's going to be. Not a blade of grass blowing anywhere. Not a leaf on a single tree blowing anywhere. There's going to be a strange stillness over the face of the earth. And then John hears the uh, the fifth angel tell the four angels not to harm the earth or the sea until God's servants have been sealed. Now folks, this is a thing we see in the Bible as an overall theme, how God seals those who belong to him. If you will allow the same language, take for instance how God sealed Noah and Noah's family back in the days before the flood. God did not allow that judgment to come in the flood until Noah and his family had been sealed. And then God sealed Lot. He did not allow Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed until first of all, Lot had been gotten out of the city safely. In fact, Lot was told, hurry, escape, for I cannot do anything until you arrive safely where I'm sending you. God sealed the Hebrews before unleashing the plagues on Egypt. God sealed Rahab before destroying Jericho. When Elijah was running from Jezebel, God assured him that he still had 7,000 others who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And so all through the Bible we see God intervening to save a remnant of his people before he delivers judgment on the rest of mankind. And that's exactly what is going on here. Now, you're going to notice two classes of people in Revelation 7. First of all, there's the 144,000. Twelve is the number of completion, and so is 12,000. And so 12 times 12,000 gives us 144,000. Now, some see it as a literal number. Others see it as simply indicating as a number of completion, a full number. But how ridiculous that there are groups today who claim to be the 144,000. Folks, it's important to see that these 144,000 are Jews. And so the next time a Jehovah Witness comes to your door and wants to claim that they can be a part of the 144,000, just ask them what tribe they belong to. Some try to say it's the spiritual Israel. There's little warrant for that too. John seems to be going to pains here listing out tribe one after another to highlight for us that he's talking here about Jews. And certainly any reader in the first century would have understood John to here be speaking of the Jews. It perfectly illustrates what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 11. God is not done with the Jew yet. God keeps his promises. 
He's keeping his promises to Abraham that we read all the way back in the book of Genesis. And I'm so thankful that we serve a God who keeps his word. I'm so glad that God is going to keep his word to Abraham and keep his covenant with Abraham because by God keeping his covenant with Abraham, it gives me a great deal of assurance that God is going to keep his promises to me as well. Now I want you to understand something. The Jew is not going to be saved in some other way than us. Salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. But God is going to do something to the Jew to stir them to jealousy and to draw them to the Messiah, to draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's exactly what Paul talks about back in the book of Romans. I want you to pick up reading with me in the verse of in the chapter uh, chapter eleven of the book of Romans. In verse one, Paul says, "I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means." For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Skip down to verse 11. He says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now look down at verse 17. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off uh, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that they may, by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. 
And so God is not done with the Jew. There is going to come a time, I believe, after the rapture of the church that they are going to understand, it's going to become clear to them, the Holy Spirit's going to do a work in them, that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, and as the Old Testament says, they are going to behold Him, they're going to look upon the one whom they have pierced. And there's going to be a mass entrance Uh, into the body of Christ, all of these Jews, a complete number out of all the tribes of Israel coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's stunning about this as we read these verses here in Revelation chapter 7 is we, we remember that the Jews of today have no idea what tribe they're a part of. You see, when the Romans came into Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple, all of the records were destroyed there. And so since then, Jews don't know which tribe they belong to. But God knows. Folks, if God knows every hair on our head, don't you think God knows which tribe a Jew belongs to? God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Now this ceiling doesn't protect them from every single trial that's going to happen. For instance, later on, we're going uh, to see how God allows an increase of demonic activity on the earth and apparently God does protect them from that. God allows them to go through certain trials during the tribulation, but God is not going to allow his people to become a plaything for demons. And so while they are sealed and while they are, they are symbolized as belonging to God and, and they're a part of his family and they're adopted children into his family whereby they, they now too can cry out, Abba, Father. And while they go through a lot of bad stuff that they have to go through during the tribulation, there's going to be certain things that God protects them from. But what I want you to see here is that God knows His own. Folks, we can take great comfort in the fact that God knows those who belong to Him. Sometimes believers go through trials and tribulations in life and and they wonder if somehow or another God has forgotten them. God, do you not see what I'm going through right now? And they question whether God sees or knows or understands. And the Bible tells us yes. God knows your name, God knows your address, God knows every hair on your uh, head. If you're God's child, there is absolutely nothing that can ever come into your life that takes you out of the notice of a God who sees everything. The ceiling of God's servants on earth. Secondly this morning I want you to see the singing of God's servants in heaven. Pick up reading with me in verse 9. 
John says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God. Now I want you to see here that we're talking about a second group, a different group. We're talking about Gentiles now because again, what does verse 9 say? John saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages. Some say it's the redeemed of all the ages. Some say it's the church that's been raptured out. And others say correctly, I believe, that it's those who were saved during the tribulation as a result of the witness of the 144,000. But from verse 14, it becomes very clear who they are. Folks, it's amazing when you read the commentaries how some commentaries stumble all over themselves trying to identify who this multitude is. But the Bible tells us in black and white. In verse 14, John said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. John sees them as a great multitude from every tribe and people group and that's the emphasis. The emphasis here is that they're a very diverse group from all over the globe that has responded to the gospel. The gospel that began in Acts 1 with, that, with the 120 gathered together in the upper room, it spread all over the globe. By now, with the, with the, uh, both now and with the 144,000 in, in the days of the tribulation, the gospel is being proclaimed. There in the upper room in Acts 1, Jesus gave his disciples. They wanted to know about the end of times. And he said, listen, there's some matters there that you're not going to know about. But, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost ends of the earth. And in the book of Acts, we see the gospel being spread out. Beginning there all over the globe, continuing down to this very day. And then in the tribulation, the hundred and 44,000 continuing that job. Now imagine this. During the tribulation there's evidently going to be a soul winning revival. The likes of which this world has never ever seen before. People from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to be converted. What a wonderful blessing that's going to be. You think now what's going on over the globe. Think of North America. I think of Canada and the United States in particular where, where there's kind of a, a deadness to the gospel and spiritual things. There's a lethargy and a, just a lukewarmness over, over North America. You get down into Latin America and South America. 
And, and what they're experiencing there is there's, there's this widespread influence of just ritualistic Catholicism. Just the system that they're going through. You go over into Western Europe where the Protestant Reformation was birthed. And so many of the pulpits there were on fire with the gospel and God was doing great things in Western Europe. Now you go over to Western Europe and, and, and those who, who study these things say that in Western Europe you almost cannot even find evangelical Christianity anymore. It's almost non-existent. These great pulpits and churches that were, that were once lighthouses to that whole region, now they're nothing more than, than monuments and museums where people go with tourist groups to see what used to be in the past. You go in the Asian countries and Buddhism and, and Hinduism is rampant. Uh, I, I think of India where it said that they have over a million gods that they serve. Then in the Middle East, of course, through much of the Middle East, all you find there, or much of what you find there, and the majority at least, is Islam. So you look at what's going on all over the globe now and, and, and evangelical Christianity, you, you would look on the globe now and of course we know there's pockets of, of real life going on but you look at the globe now and, and boy missionaries are, are having a tough time and, and sometimes they have to stay on fields for decades before they even begin to see conversions. But the Bible says there is coming a time in the great tribulation where all over this globe there's going to be multitudes coming to faith in Jesus Christ from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. What a time of hallelujah shouting it's going to be for them. That's why I've said before it's not necessary to assume that that verse in Matthew 24 where Matthew 24, where Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse that this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the ends of the earth and, and then the end shall come. Some post-tribulationist and amillennialist in particular say that the rapture can't happen yet. There may not even be a rapture, they would say. The gospel's got to be carried to the ends of the globe and then the end shall come. But what they fail to see, if there's the rapture of the church, the 144,000, the witness of the two that we're going to meet in Revelation 11, and even the angels are going to be preaching the gospel during the tribulation to the ends of the earth. And then the end, Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, shall happen. But my point is, I don't, I don't see any reason whatsoever in the Bible that the rapture of the church couldn't happen this afternoon before we come back tonight for worship. It could happen. John sees this number here and he says they're countless in number and I want you to notice where they are. They are with God. 
Again, we need to see just by what the elder tells John in verse 14, there's coming this great soul-winning revival. Imagine when the rapture happens, people are going to be more responsive to the gospel than they've ever been before. Boy, people's attention is going to be awakened. I want you to notice that they're singing. They're singing about their salvation and they're praising God. Have you ever noticed in the passages in the Bible that have to do with worship? People are into it 110%. Some of our worship today is so humdrum. Now, I'm not saying that we got to be jumping over pews. You know, I'd, I'd kind of be uncomfortable with a little of that. But so much of our worship today is just so humdrum. It kind of reminds me of the man who was always coming into church and going to sleep. And he decided one day he was going to turn over a new leaf. And so he told his pastor, he said, Can you give me a song to have on my lips as I come to worship? And the pastor said, I sure can. For you, it's now I lay me down to sleep. But they are singing and, and they are filled with gratitude and they're filled with joy. Now folks, remember the context here. They've been beaten, they've been killed, they've been persecuted. They've done without, they've starved because they would not receive the mark of the beast. And because they would not receive the mark of the beast, they could neither buy nor sell. And so they've done without. They've been mocked. But now they're with God. And notice what they're doing. They're, they're praising God because they're in heaven now. And as Revelation 21 tells us, God says to his people there that he is making all things new. There's going to be no more sorrow or suffering or disease or death or persecution or any of the things the people of God have to go through now. He's making all things new and we're going to be in God's presence forever and ever. They're safe. They have no worries. They're with God. They're in their eternal home and everything they could ever need, God provides for them. Folks, think of how wonderful heaven's going to be. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has it even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. You know what I think Paul's saying there? As wonderful as the descriptions of heaven in the Bible are, it's like Paul is saying human words cannot even capture it all. And they're there. God's taking care of all their needs. David said in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Think of the day that we're going to be able to say that in heaven. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. Whether physical needs or emotional needs or spiritual needs, whatever needs we have, God is going to take care of us. 
And so John sees this great multitude. They're around the throne. They're not bitter. They're not complaining. There's no worry on their faces. They're, they're relaxing in the presence of God. And they're in heaven. And they're enjoying heaven as a place of service and worship and delight. Notice he says they're serving God day and night. I can tell you right now, heaven is not going to be a place where we just float around on clouds all day playing harps. It's going to be a place of service. And we will be home. Four lessons I want to go over quickly with you. I just want to read them. You have them on your sermon notes page. God keeps his word. God's not through with the Jew yet. He always preserves for himself a remnant. Thirdly, God knows who belongs to him. And fourthly, regardless of what we go through on earth, there is rejoicing in heaven. Folks, we have a tremendous inheritance waiting on us. I want to invite you today, come to Christ today. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come to Christ. The Bible says God seals people today with His Holy Spirit. Somebody repents of their sin, places their faith in Jesus Christ. At that moment, the Bible says the Holy Spirit. Not sometime later. Not some some. Second blessing later on. The Bible says as soon as somebody comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit of the living God moves into their life. And they become the adopted sons and daughters of God in that instant. And your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Wouldn't you love to have that experience? It's not religion. It's a relationship with Christ. The New Testament doesn't talk about a religion where you mark things off of a list and say, okay, I must be right with God. The Bible talks about the Spirit of the living God regenerating our hearts. It's called the new birth when somebody comes to know Christ. If you've never had that experience, I'd like to pray with you this morning about that. If you belong to Christ, I want you to see today that you win. You may give your life on this earth for Christ just like these tribulation saints did, but, but you win. That great missionary, Jim Elliott, who was a martyr for Christ. Maybe you've seen the movie At the End of the Spear. He gave his life for Christ. I love what Jim Elliott said about life on one occasion. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Beloved, we win. Let that sink in. Whatever you're going through in life now, eventually as the people of God, we win. It's going to be okay. It's going to be better than okay. 
Thirdly, I want to say learn to worship God now. Maybe that's an area you struggle with. Maybe your prayer today needs to be, God, help me to learn how to worship in spirit and in truth. Finally, commit your life to being a witness for Christ. Lose yourself in service for the Lord. Be a witness of the Lord in all that you do. Would you stand please? Our hymn of invitation is going to be on the screens behind me. Maybe you do need to be the one to come forward this morning and say, Pastor, pray for me. I need to be saved. Been in church all my life maybe, but I've never been saved. Or maybe you're searching for a church home. We'd love to be your church home. You respond. You might be a great encouragement to somebody else here today.